the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Are you ready to get down to business? Join seasoned entrepreneur, community leader, and Army veteran Scott Shalom Klein, who will take you behind the scenes with those who work in America's small business scene and speak with leaders making an impact, creating jobs, and telling their story in entrepreneurship. So let's get down to business. On AM560, The Answer, here's your host, Shalom Klein. And indeed, we're all about small business jobs and entrepreneurship and business. We talk a lot about business here. You're on with Get Down to Business, and I'm your Shalom Klein. Remember, you can always download podcasts on my website at sykline.com. While you are there, don't forget to follow me on Twitter at Shalom Klein. It's going to be a jam-packed week, so let's jump right in with Dr. Drew Jones, an anthropologist, former business school professional, and practicing management consultant. He's a founding partner of Experian, a workplace culture and strategy consultancy we're going to talk all about his experience uh, in culture, leadership, and workplace design projects throughout the world. Um, but he has a new book it's called Open Culture Handbook, Five Questions to Drive Engagement and Innovation. Just came out about two months ago. Drew, welcome to the program. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, Shalom, so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. So let's jump right in. There's a lot of books that have been uh, that have been written. There's a lot of approaches out there about managing corporate culture. Why is your approach any different and why is it any better? And why should people read your book? Yeah, well, that's the million dollar question, isn't it? Um, so <clears throat> typically, well, first of all, despite the proliferation of books about corporate culture, I don't know how many per year are published, but lots, I can tell you that. But despite the effort and general agreement at the CEO level that culture is important. You know, the phrase from Peter Drucker that culture eats strategy for breakfast is something that everybody tends to agree with. But the data on how effective conventional change programs are is really quite damning. When you look at 30% employee engagement rates for 60 plus years, 70% of corporate change programs fail to achieve their stated objectives, 80 to 90% of mergers and acquisitions fail often because of poor culture fit, and the data go on and on. And so the question that's really the motivation behind the book is, so why is business generally, despite the, the hype about the importance of culture, statistically so bad at it, frankly? Um, and so I went back to my roots as, a, as an anthropologist, particularly to, particularly to evolutionary anthropology, to try to think more scientifically about what culture is and how it can or cannot be managed. And so um, the typical approach, and this is a way to talk about, you know, why my approach is different. The typical approach is we administer a massive survey. A, co a company uh, comes out as a certain culture type, uh, as if, you know, there are six or eight types of culture that an organization can have. And then the consultants come in and try to uh, close the gap between the culture they have now and the culture they want to have. This is the standard approach. 
But the statistics show that it just rarely ever happens. And that's because in that model, culture is, is really an abstraction. It's a vague, abstract set of values and goals and behaviors that the organization wants to try to move towards. But they put the onus of that change on employees. And I look at employees as much more pragmatic, what I call using anthropology language, you know, culture-bearing animals, which is what we are, uh, and that what matters to employees are much more material, basic things, day-to-day experiences at work, not abstractions uh, that are very unachievable. So I focus in, what I did it for the book is I, I started to research companies that do things very, very differently that also tend to report super high levels of innovation and high levels of employee engagement. Companies uh, such as the new IBM, Patagonia, WL Gore, Microsoft under Satya Nadella, Nike under Mark Parker. And, and they they commit to a different approach to culture that's very much uh, grounded in employee experience and not these abstract goals. And so there are five elements of this that I focus in on the book. Um, and one is, is uh, purpose. I look back at the science of human culture and that we're, humans are a emotional species and not a rational species. And it's very difficult to motivate people with numbers and spreadsheets. So companies that have a very compelling why, a purpose, uh, tend to, uh, you know, get people rowing in the same direction. Uh, and, you know, a company like Patagonia, very idealistic, but their culture is extremely story and, and purpose driven. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then really the focus of the book is on innovation and that and part of what I'm really trying to get at here, my first couple of books were about innovation as well. And that looked at in an evolutionary framework, culture really is about evolution and human adaptation over time. And so uh, companies uh, like W.L. Gore and Hare Electronics and Intuit, they have systems in place, not abstract goals, but systems where they empower employees on a weekly basis to spend some portion of their work time working on new concepts and innovation opportunities for the company. And so what I try to articulate in the book is that that allowance of time for people to work on innovation projects is actually as much an employee engagement and human resource issue as it is a business growth issue because people are being allowed to use the full measure of their creativity. Uh, And that goes back to the evolutionary science of experimentation and problem solving. So there's this myth that only a few people are creative enough to be innovative yeah, uh, when in yeah fact, I'm standing with Dr. Drew Jones, the author of Open Culture Handbook: Five Questions to Drive Engagement and Innovation. And Drew, you've been you've been uh, alluding to a lot of uh, companies. You talked about uh, Nike's former CEO Mark Parker. Talked about Microsoft. You've talked about a lot of different companies um, and some really practical examples. And and that's really where I want to drive this conversation as we move forward. You know, a lot of our listeners certainly look at at large companies, and and I know you you have extensive experience in in many different industries uh, and they're they're like wow well those are large those are larger organizations i'm just trying to yeah. run my small company my small shop drew my yeah. question for you is how is this relevant 
Um, especially in an age where some people call that great resignation. How can I drive this culture in what seems to be even more challenging times than ever? Yeah, well, um, as you're, are you talking particularly with respect to small businesses or just any organization? Let's talk small businesses. Okay. Yeah, so, you know, one of the Frankly, my research is and consulting is often around with large firms, but on but on um, the small business level, this is equally important. <clears throat> so, give you an example and show how it applies. At, at Morningstar Tomatoes, it's the largest processor of tomato pro- products in the country. Uh, not that big; it's three hundred employees, so it's bigger than a small small company, but it's not a Fortune five hundred company. They um, have completely self-managed, self-organized company. There's no titles. There's no bosses. The entire organization is self-organizing. And the way they do that, one, is they have, you know, high, high levels of trust in their people. But secondly, they have a very tangible thing that they do. They have, they have a concept called the colleague letter of understanding, or in their language, CLU, C-L-O-U. And that is a, a when you when they hire a new person, that person writes a letter to the team they're going to be working with, and in particular to an individual in that team, stating the value that they they feel like they can bring to that team for the coming year. Mm -hmm. Okay, so it's on record. It's sort of a a team agreement of sorts. Mm -hmm. The person they write that clue to every two months posts that person's progress towards their own goals for the entire company to see very transparent. And so it's, it combines uh, sort of radical transparency with radical accountability in that, yes, you're given a lot of leeway to uh, organize in ways that the team wants, but if you don't perform, you're pretty much out. And so, Dr. Jones, um, I, I know we're running out of time over here, and I want to make sure our listeners can. I don't want to give them all the secrets to the test over here. I want to make sure, sure they sure. get a copy of your book, Open Culture Handbook. Drew, how can people learn more about you and, of course, pick up a copy of this great read? Yeah, thank you so much. Yes, I can be found at drewjones.co. Uh, and uh, the book is at um, Open Culture Handbook is at Amazon and Barnes and & Noble and at the publisher as well. Uh, and yes, so also the firm that I run called Experient, we put this into practice, particularly as it relates to designing new ways of working in this hybrid era. And um, yes, so those are the places where it can be found. And um, I appreciate the opportunity to uh, introduce it a little bit to readers. Absolutely. Look forward to having you back on sometime real soon. Uh, that's a wrap for us. With Dr. Drew Jones, we're going to be right back on the show. All about small business jobs and entrepreneurship. You're listening to Get Down to Business. Don't touch that dial. Lots more in store on this great show. And we're 
back on the show all about small business, jobs, and entrepreneurship. So we know that the journey to an ideal career is not a straight line, but one full of twists and turns. And that's what we're going to talk with Meredith Melberg all about. She writes about this in her new book, Your Finest Work, Career Fulfillment in a Complicated World. And complicated world it is. I'm so excited. I've been so excited for this conversation with Meredith Melberg. Welcome to the program. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks, Shalom. I'm happy to be here. Absolutely. So I would love to get to know the person behind the microphone, Meredith. I know you didn't wake up one day and decide to write about career fulfillment in a complicated world just for fun. Tell us your story. Sure. Well, so growing up, my mom wanted me to be a psychologist, but even as a young person, I realized that wasn't action-oriented enough for me. I had a lot of different interests. I I considered myself a generalist. And coming out of uh, UC Berkeley, I went into recruitment. I was working as a translator between people who wanted jobs and people who had them. And that led to me later getting into product management where I was building systems that recruiters used. And that also was a translation job between technology professionals who built software and customers who needed software to solve business problems. So through that experience, it became exquisitely oriented to observation, helping audiences understand messages from different perspectives, et cetera. But I, I was looking for what I really wanted to do. And I, I, I was, my ladder was up the wrong wall as I got into uh, upper echelons of product management and startup environments. And I worked with a career counselor who helped me realize that I actually wanted to become a coach. I hadn't been familiar with coaching before that. But over a period of time, I saved up a whole bunch of money and quit my job and made a transition. And over about three years, uh, you know, ramped down my my career in IT and product management, worked as a consultant for a while to uh, finance my education, and then set up my practice. That's been about 20 years ago now. And my translation abilities really come in handy when I'm working with professionals. I get sort of the win of coaching is very action-oriented, helping people figure out where they want to go. But it builds on my pragmatism that came from the corporate and startup experiences that I had as a product manager and a recruiter. And it's just uh, something I've never really looked back on. And about 10 years ago, my husband uh, quit his job and he supports me in the business. And I've had various versions of my work over the years. But about six years ago, I started writing down what I was noticing because I'm a really good pattern matcher. And I was seeing that even though everybody's story was different of the thousands of people that I've worked with, there were some patterns. And I ultimately um, understood and discovered there were about seven and uh, seven strategies, seven traps. And that's what I wrote about. And I just felt like it was a good capstone on this uh, 20-year body of work that I have behind me in the coaching field. Absolutely. So you practice what you preach. Um, I know you certainly have had your twists and turns, and it sounds like you are not only uh, accomplishing everything that you uh, set out um, in that those early discussions with your mom, um, but now you are partnering with high uh, EQ executives in strategic roles and really helping them uh, through coaching uh, to steer that ship. And we're going to talk more about that in a couple of minutes. So Meredith, um, this is really, really interesting. Um, and the the last few words in your book title is a complicated world. So Meredith, what has changed? What's going on right now in terms of folks that maybe uh, the pandemic may have uh, helped to clarify perhaps in, in sort of helping people determine what they actually really want to do? Are you seeing any trends out there? 
For sure. I think the biggest thing is that right now, the good news about what's happened is that nobody's going to question you if you decide you want to make a change. Like the world around us is so disrupted that um, it's time for purpose and meaning. And more and more people are really taking stock and saying, given the way the world is going, how do I want to be in my life and my professional career? So I'm finding that the, um, you know, in, in, in some ways, my, my work is getting harder because there's a lot of pain that people are showing up with, a lot of uncertainty. You have to, um, in ambiguous times, more and more, you have to have steadiness come from within you. And so I'm noticing that a lot of focus is on how how does a person make sense of what's going on around them and translate that into what they want to do, what the personal agency they want to have for their, their own life and their professional career. So more than ever, there's sort of this urgency of, gosh, this really needs to matter for me. I want to do something that feels like it's going to make me feel like I'm contributing to something that's larger, larger than myself. The other thing that I'm noticing, and I, I, I talk a lot with futurists, and when you go back to sort of like the 10,000 foot level and look at overarchingly what's happening in this decade, my favorite futurist, David Houle, talks about how this is the most complicated um, disruptive decade in human history, the 2020s. And why it is, is because it's the collapse of 20th century thinking and the on, onset of um, 21st century thinking. So thinking and institutions. So the pandemic w- is seen as just the first of many disruptions that we're going through. And so this is, this is leading to, you know, a crisis in lots of different ways, which we're seeing all around us. But it's also um, causing sort of this inward journey of, okay, what do I want given this reality around me? And how do I want to be with that in myself? And so I'm seeing more and more people looking for purpose, meaning uh, really wanting to both hedge their bets and take care of their needs um, and the needs of their families and communities, but at the same time, make decisions that matter for their own life and how it's looking at a lot of my different clients is like having uh, incubating a future change or doing something alongside their current body of work, thinking more about a portfolio career. Uh, there's a number of different ways it shows up, but those are some of the trends that I'm noticing, Shalom. Absolutely. And sometimes that's easier said than done when, again, you want to, you know what you, you, you know where you want to be, but you don't know how to get there. And that's why you've come up with a really interesting approach. It's called CLEAR, which of course is an acronym. Um, Meredith, do you mind walking us through the highlights of what that is? Sure. It's an easy to remember way to approach any problem or question you're sitting with. It could be around your career. It could be around your family. It could be any number of things. But CLEAR stands for Clarify, Learn, Evaluate, Act, and Refine. And the idea is in the first step, clarify, you're figuring out what is the problem I'm trying to solve? What is the question I'm sitting with? And it's really important not to rush that. You have to think about how will I know that I've solved it well? What what are the measures of success that I will use? Um, it, it comes from when you learn to be a coach, there's a lot of work about how do you make sure you're solving for the right issue? Uh, and it may not be the first presenting issue that somebody brings up. So clarifying what you uh, want to be solving, whether it's, hey, w- w- um, how will I know my career feels purposeful? Or how will I know that I've made a good decision about my next step professionally? Uh, learn is, okay, well, now that I know what the measures of success are and the real question, what are the options available to me? How can I get curious about what directions I could go? What am I already thinking about? What could I 
ask others about? Where where could I research? What How can I be in brainstorming mode? And then evaluate is, okay, now that I have those options, which ones make the most sense given what I've said is important to me? And part of the clarify step is also how, you know, how will I have those success measures of how I've known that I've been true to myself? So evaluating is um, taking a look at those criteria and comparing them to the options so that you can make the best decision. Sometimes the decision is one way to go from here. Sometimes it's a couple, but the idea is that you distill it down. And then act is, you know, taking action on your own behalf. Um, that would require, you know, taking what I call imperfect action. You're not trying to be uh, doing it right. You're trying to make incremental progress. So what are the things that you can start doing, continue doing, stop doing? What are some experiments you can run? Um, what, what, what revisions or evolutions or agile methodology might you use to take action and make the best decision and move forward with it now? And then refine gives you sort of the grace of, okay, well, I, I took action. Now I'm going to refine my approach. I'm going to go back and clarify, go back to the start of the process, clarify, you know, what, what does the world look like now for me? What do I need to uh, continue to tweak as I navigate this for myself? So that's the, the clear framework, Shalom. And, and like I said, it can be applied to lots of different situations. Absolutely. I'm chatting with Meredith Melberg, the author of Your Finest Work, Career Fulfillment in a Complicated World. I know it just came out um, uh, just about two months ago, but uh, this is really a, uh, a, a process that you've been a part of and, and really you've captured it. And I know it's going to help so many folks. I'm going to send people over to your website in just a moment or two. But uh, Meredith, real quick, um, before we get to that point, I'm curious if you can highlight any success stories, either in your coaching or, or uh, readers that you've heard from that uh, this has helped to clarify, no pun, no pun intended, um, in, their, uh, in their complicated path forward. Sure. There's lots of examples, but just uh, a couple that come to mind was um, a, a leader who was uh, having a 360 done. I was his leadership coach and his company had hired me to take a look at what was getting in the way of him being truly effective. And what he learned was that he wasn't paying attention to the unspoken in the relationships with his stakeholders. And so as a result, they thought he wasn't a good partner. He was driving, so focused on delivering. He was a technology leader, so focused on delivering that he um, was not not paying attention to the needs the stakeholders had. And so we work to help him become aware of how do you read the room? Uh, how do you be inclusive in the way you uh, make agendas for meetings and make sure that you're speaking to the elephant in the room? And what he was able to transform was to pay attention on a whole new level mm -hmm. and up-level his ability to be successful. He he got a promotion. He later went on to, to a new job. So that's, well, that's Meredith, an example. Well, let's make sure we get people uh, over to your book yeah. and over to your website. Sure. How can people get in touch? Sure. They can look at yourfinestwork.com. I've got some free tools there. They can sign up and take a look at my coaching options as well. Thanks so much for having me on the show. I'd, I'd be happy to talk to anybody who's interested in learning more. Absolutely. Meredith Melberg, thanks so much for joining us. Quick break. We'll be right back. And we're back on the show all about small business jobs and entrepreneurship. We're going to talk about something that I'm really passionate about. And that's the sad reality is that most projects fail to meet their objectives. Mastering a simple project management process fixes this. That's exactly what Michelle Abras is here to join us to talk all about. She's the founder and CEO of Cheetah Learning and the author of Cheetah Negotiations, Cheetah Project Management, Cheetah Know How, and Cheetah Agile Project. Michelle, I'm detecting a theme over here. Welcome to the program. Well, yeah, yes, thank you for having me on here. Yes, it's all about Cheetah Fast. 
It is, and I know that's your favorite uh, pattern. Your uh, many of your pictures on your website have that. Um, first of all, thank you for your service. I know you have you've had a rich career as an Air Force officer and a dynamic background in aerospace engineering. So, let's start with that. Is how did those backgrounds lead you into that passion for project management? How did it help you in that journey? Well, I'm a systems engineer, and uh, after I got out of the Air Force, I started my first company and quickly realized that. Uh, most of the two ways we were teaching adults in corporate America was a lesson in boredom tolerance. And so I got into accelerated learning for corporate training because I knew that we could teach stuff probably 10 times faster than we were, especially to smart people. And uh, they were getting really demoralized by having to go to these a lot of corporate classes that were extremely boring and not well put together. So um, I quickly switched over to training and learning because there was a huge need for it. And I was at this research center. And when I got out of the Air Force, I started my first company. And then I need through a couple of life circumstances. Any entrepreneur out there knows the routine. I ended up having to get a job for a couple of years. And I was at this research center as an aerospace engineer. And I ended up doing a lot of project disaster recovery with my other engineers Mm -hmm. and scientists because I was just good at it. And uh, I wanted to create an accelerated learning approach to teaching project management. And my boss said, oh, no, we just need you to teach a facilitations class because uh, we have people going to a project management class now. And I said, really? It's not helping. And uh, they were going to a five-day class and they came back and they still couldn't do anything. So I got rid of my department. (laughs) You know, I mean, like, yeah, what good are you guys doing? And they kept me. I reported to the head of the company because they needed me to, to do their project disaster recovery facilitation. And I asked him the same question. Can I create this project management class? And he said, sure, go for it. So it was a great environment for me to test it out. And it was one day approach to, to doing learning and doing project management. And uh, I ended up teaching it all throughout. The, it was a large multinational company. And I was teaching it for all of the different divisions and was getting quite a name for myself. I was becoming, what did they call it at the time, an intrapreneur, which is an entrepreneur <laughs> within a company. And uh, the head of the company goes, you know, we're known for research, not for training. And uh, you're making quite the name for us for training, which we don't really like. It's off brand. And he goes, you can take your class and you can go set up your own company. And I'm like, oh, great. Thanks a lot, <laughs> which is awesome. And so they gave me the IP rights to my course and I set up Cheetah. And I Cheetah, and, and now you're helping uh, folks uh, reach their goals. Cheetah fast. I'm chatting with Michelle Abras. Um, it, it, it's really, really fantastic that story and what a what a journey you've been on, Michelle. We are a practical show. We like to help people, as we say, get down to business, which is why you're the absolute perfect guest for the program. But one of the things we talk a lot about is why 75 percent of projects fail. So why do you think that is? And how can what's the one tip that people can implement to uh, to to get off to a better, uh, better path? Don't start the project in the first place. Oh, my gosh. I'm not kidding. Oh 90% of projects should never even be started. People have no idea what they're doing. They don't know what it means to even finish the project. They have no idea what's required. They haven't done their homework. They they like they're totally clueless. And you need to dial it way back. You need to figure out what is it I'm capable of getting done. How do do I have the experience to do it? Do I have the capabilities? Do I have the capital to do it? There's so many things you need to ask yourself before you ever start the project. Do we even know what done means? And 
do I care enough to, to go the distance with this? So there's five things I look at. Experience, capabilities, uh, the capital to do it. And I don't just talk about money. I'm talking about your relationships and your reputation and your infrastructure and your re- and do you even have the skills to do it? And then do, can we agree on done? And is this something that's going to still be important to me next month? And Absolutely, if you can answer Michelle. yes for all of those questions and you need to take a harder look at what did I need to put in place to do this project? But I'm going to tell you, most projects are started without even asking those five questions. Absolutely, Michelle. That's fantastic advice and so timely right now as everybody's looking at their goals. Michelle, one of the goals should be that um, that entrepreneurs of all varieties uh, contact you and your team at Cheetah Learning and, of course, get a copy of your book. Michelle, in our, in our last few seconds remaining, how can people get in touch with you and why should they take one of your courses? Well, because they're going to get their stuff done a lot faster. My latest book, Cheetah Agile Projects, is about how to finish significant projects in two weeks. Because if you can't finish something of significance in two weeks, you probably shouldn't be doing it and you don't know enough to do it. So that's what the the Cheetah Agile Projects is about. You can find it on Amazon. Just Google Cheetah Agile Agile Projects. You could also just go to CheetahAgileProjects.com and you can go to CheetahLearning.com. I'm anything Cheetah, I'm probably associated with it at this stage (laughs) of the game. (laughs) <laughs> I love it, Michelle Lebrosa. I could talk to you for hours, my friend, and I can't wait to bring you back on. Uh, but if there's anybody that could do a rapid-fire conversation talking about completing projects, it's you, um, Cheetah Agile Project. Uh, Michelle Lebrosa, thanks so much for joining us. Quick break on the show, all about small business jobs and entrepreneurship. We're going to be right back. Check out my website, sycline.com. Michelle, thanks again for joining us. Thank you. are back on the show all about small business jobs and entrepreneurship remember you can always get on any podcast app subscribe rate review and share just search for get down to business so you don't miss a single episode i am so excited for this conversation i am thrilled to be joined by a tech company builder and marketing consultant that's mark donegan mark designs and executes marketing programs and go-to market strategies to establish and grow markets for disruptive innovation startup companies. And Mark is a transformative business-to-business marketing and business leader and understands what's required to succeed in today's winner-take-all market. And that's why we wanted to bring him onto the program. Mark Donegan, welcome to the show. Hey, it's great to be here. Thanks for the uh, invitation. I love getting down to business, so let's do it. I know you do. Absolutely. You're a revenue first marketer and you've raised a lot of money. You've produced a lot of money. That's great. Mark, I always love to get to know the person behind the microphone. Tell Mm. our listeners a little bit about yourself and how you became so passionate about this work. Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, you know, when I was 12 years old, my uncle, one of my uncles uh, gave me a book on uh, computer programming. Now I'm going to date myself a bit, um, but it was talking about this new language called basic. <laughs> so, um, you know, as a 12 year old, I could easily wrap my uh, head around that. So, um, yeah, it just blew my mind uh, that I could, you know, um, write code and make a computer do something. So 
um, found myself spending, uh, you know, nights uh, in my school's math department where the Apple was, the Apple II, <laughs> and uh, taught, taught myself programming and, you know, really, really had a great time. It was a foregone conclusion that, you know, when I uh, went off to college, university, that I would go into computer science program, which I did. Um, but uh, after a couple of years, I realized that my real passion was not actually making computers work. It was playing music. So dropped out of that program, went to music school, uh, dreams of being a rock star, all the usual <laughs> motivations. Um Found out that, you know, poor starving musician, that's not exactly the life I wanted. So that brings me to business. And, you know, along the way, I had been um, uh, selling computers at an Apple, you know, it, they didn't have Apple stores back then, but the independent resellers. And um, yeah, you know, just started working my way up. Um, you know how it is. You kind of get started and one thing leads to another. And next thing you know, you're you know, you've got 30 sellers working for you and, you know, you're doing $40 million of revenue and, you know, that sort of thing. Um, but along the way, the connection to marketing is um, along the way, I observed that marketing was like this, this, um, you know, this rocket fuel <laughs> that you could add. Yeah. And when you're a seller, you're always looking for, you know, that, it, you know, that extra push. Right. Um, and often I was in environments where maybe marketing wasn't uh, what I thought it should be or what it could be. So, you know, just out of selfish ambition, not because I was trying to become a marketer, but I'm like, hey, you know, I, I you know, I, I want some extra rocket fuel on my sales and on my team sales. And so, you know, it led me down a path to becoming a student of marketing and um, you know, then eventually I found myself doing more, you know, strategy and market development. And then I started, you know, carrying the title of, you know, mm -hmm. VP of marketing, CMO, that sort of thing. And, yeah, you, you know, you look back and you say, um, oh, yeah, you know, I architected my career path. In reality, <laughs> you know, there's some serendipity along the way. But uh, for sure, you know, that's for sure. How I got to where I am, so that's why the absolutely. revenue first Mark marketer Donigan, um, is yeah, a big absolutely. deal. Absolutely, and and now growth growth stage marketing, um, which really is the perfect name because you've really, uh, as as I mentioned in the intro, you've produced five hundred million plus in revenue um, for the companies that you've worked with, which yes. is huge. And I love Mark what you've been saying of balancing that marketing, business, technology aptitude. Um, really, really impressive. So we are all about, as you said before, getting down to business. Getting and um, business. many, yep. many of our listeners are from the small business world. They hear marketing and they're like, "That's what Apple. That's what those large companies do." <laughs> but one right. of the things companies you talk that about can a lot. Afford it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but you, you talk about all the time is is sometimes you know being being really really nimble, being you know operating on yeah. a shoestring budget. And I know Mark, you believe that you can accomplish a lot. Yeah. So let's get down to it. How is that possible? Yeah, absolutely. I, I truly believe that. And, uh, you know, it, I do primarily work with startups, which, you know, by the way, um, some startups are actually smaller than, uh, you know, than a, than, than a local business. Uh, you know, somebody that has a reasonably good size landscaping firm, you know, just to pull that out as an example, you know, they might have 30, 40, 50 people working for them, you know, landscapers out in the field. Well, you know, some of the startups, they've got 25 or 30 people. So it's not, you know, just because it's they're in technology and maybe they even raised a lot of money doesn't necessarily mean, you know, you've got a lot of people. And, and it doesn't always mean that there's money just flowing down the street, you know, for things like marketing. So, 
the 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 scrappy side of marketing is really interesting because um 10 15 years ago certainly like 20 years ago um there was a lot more in marketing that you had to pay to play and you know whether that was literally buying ads or you know paying um for a booth at a trade show or you know it looked different ways depending on the market you're in whether you're selling to consumers whether you're selling to business but really everything going digital and on social and you know websites through Google etc it really has flattened now it doesn't mean everything's free you know, um, still, um, there's, you know, some platforms you just have to pay to get exposure, but there is so much that we can do that doesn't have to cost a lot of money. It's going to cost a little money, but not a lot. And, uh, you know, we can talk about some of the specific tactics, but. Oh, I can't wait to get into it. We're going to continue our conversation with Mark Donegan in just a couple of minutes. The leveraging every tool that we have is something that you and your team, Growth Stage Marketing, he's a virtual chief marketing officer and business consultant, excited to get down to business and continue talking about those nuts and bolts of how you can put it into action in the weeks and months ahead. We'll be back with Mark Donegan in a moment. about small business jobs and entrepreneurship. I'm continuing my conversation with today's guest, Mark Donegan, who builds technology companies as a virtual chief marketing officer and business consultant since starting his career as a stellar and advancing sales leadership. Mark is a revenue-first marketer who has produced $500 million plus in revenue and enterprise value for the companies he's worked with. Mark, we were just talking about, before the break, we were talking about some of the ways that even small business owners tuning into this program can get after it. Mark, I'm going to turn it over to you. Give us the, give us the tips. Maybe not all the secrets. We'll get people in touch. Sure. Tell us what our listeners need to know. Yeah. Well, so number one, here is the secret. So um, whether whether you're a small business, whether you sell um, and, and I'm going to primarily focus on, on business to business, um, but but business to consumer, it works. It can work very similarly. The first thing that most people miss is they don't know exactly who their buyer is and where their buyer hangs out. And let me explain this. Um, the buyer is not just, you know, the whole universe that you could sell to. The buyer is a very narrow group. It might actually be a very small number of companies, individuals, etc., who have a need. They're looking for a solution that you provide. Okay. So they have that problem. They're looking for that solution. And it is amazing to me how many companies fall into sort of the trap of saying, well, but you know, we just want to reach everybody because then more people will know about us. And, 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 and that's, you know, it's almost like increasing my odds of success. You know, um, it doesn't work that way. And so the first thing is to get very, very specific on what is the problem that we solve? Who can benefit from that? And where can I reach those people? Okay. If you start there, all of a sudden you say, well, you know what? Those people, you know, meaning the, you know, that buyer cohort, if you think of it that way, you know, these buyers, they tend to go to these industry conferences or they tend to hang out in these online forums or these online communities or, you know, they get their information through this other channel. And then what you do is you just simply go to those channels. You go to those conferences. You go to those, you know, wherever those buyers hang out and you just 
start conversations. Sounds so simple, and yet so few companies actually do that. Um, and a lot of times it's just showing up in those communities, you know, so you might say, but Mark, I don't have a budget for a trade show booth at the conference. You don't need a budget, buy a ticket <laughs> and just walk around and spark conversations. And, and, and it is amazing how quote unquote serendipity slash luck happens. And that's one way that's, to get really, really that's, scrappy that's and I, you know, ultimately, that's that's what we want to do, and especially as we have this conversation at the end of the year, uh, getting close to New Year's, everybody's looking for what's that new strategy. And some of these things are so yeah. obvious, yeah. and that's what that's you do so is really helping to uh, yep. to give that consulting and that advice, even small companies. So, Mark, I know our listeners have a lot of questions for you, and will want to follow your podcast and follow the writings that you have. How can people get in touch with you? Yeah, I have a lot of tremendous resources, especially if you are in the technology space and if you're selling uh, predominantly B2B, uh, go to growthstage.marketing. So my website, again, it's growthstage.marketing. And uh, everything's free. Um, you know, you can go and click around. I've got, you know, other podcast interviews I've done. Just a lot of tremendous resources uh, that, you know, I think will be very beneficial. Absolutely. And best of all, so much of this advice is is free. Uh, the conversation can't hurt anybody. Uh, and certainly I would encourage everybody as we wrap up this program, set out your New Year's resolution, set out your goals for how you are going to ensure your company, your enterprise, your entrepreneurship, your entrepreneurial venture is staged for growth. And uh, that's exactly what Mark Donegan can do. Mark, thanks so much for joining us. Really appreciate having you on. That's a wrap for us here on the show, all about small business jobs and entrepreneurship. We'll be back on, of course, next Sunday at 6 p.m. right here on AM560, The Answer. And wherever podcasts can be found, get on my website, sykline.com. Be sure to check out our sponsors, Tom Mirabali from healthplanchicago.com. Again, to success, Let's get down to business. We'll talk next Sunday at 6 p.m. right here on AMPOP 6 The Answer. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.